The book of Esther is one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once, which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. There are two separate books in our modern Bibles, but that division is due simply to scroll length. It was originally written as one coherent story. The Israelites come to Samuel, and they say, hey, we want a king like all the other nations have. Go find one for us. And so Samuel, he's kind of ticked off, and he goes to consult with God. And God says, yes, their motives are all wrong, but if a king is what they want, give them. And so we're introduced to the figure of Saul. Now, Saul is a tragic because he begins full of promise. He's tall, he's good-looking, he's a perfect candidate for a king. But he has deep character flaws. He's dishonest, he lacks integrity, and he seems incapable of acknowledging his own mistakes. And so these flaws become his downfall. He wins some battles at the beginning, but his flaws run so deep, he eventually disqualifies himself by blatantly disobeying God's commands. And so the aging Samuel confronts Saul and Israel. He had warned the people that they would only benefit from a king who's humble and faithful to God. Otherwise, the kings of Israel will bring ruin. So he informs Saul that God is going to raise up a new king. Because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. That would be absolutely incredible. Um, if you're visiting with us today, my name is Philip and I'm a pastor here. And so I'm glad that you're with us and that you're visiting with us this morning. So that, that's good. Um, so this is part two of our Esther series. And... Um, Sometimes I, I think back when I'm doing these things like now to what maybe I was thinking about last year when I was doing these particular sermons and getting all this stuff together. And there's a pethro stuff that I was thinking about. But what was currently happening in our country is it, and it had been happening for a long time, it, it's not something that, that just showed up last, you know, May. But what we saw was evil what we would consider to be evil, was beginning to push against our country and rise up in very significant ways. You would have people protesting for things that you're not really sure why they're protesting 
for those things. And then as the story progressed, you'd realize that some of those were hired to protest those particular things. You would have all this kind of stuff in the media that was bad and that was happening. And and it made you feel as a Christian as if evil was going to win the day. Um, I would say that as we progress further, we've, we've had some days where we felt like that evil is being pushed back a little bit, and then we've had days where we just feel like it's reared its head again, and it's pushing against the things that God would approve of and that God would want in a country like ours. And so this this sermon right here, um, I started to think about those types of things and how evil has a tendency to um, bring in dark days and you're wondering sometimes if evil is just going to win the day and how far God is going to allow that evil to continue and to occur and to take over, and will he push that evil back and allow us to have days like we are used to where evil is back in a corner and God's righteousness is, is what is really elevated. And so this, this sermon deals with what to do when evil arises. Now, I would, I would tell you, and I think the Bible would tell you too that, well, I know the Bible would tell you, I don't think, I know the Bible would tell you that evil comes from a couple of different places. One is the demonic world and Satan. Um, we have a tendency as believers to blame everything on Satan. You know what I mean? Like, you're at a cash out lot and it's that person that can't figure out how to put the chip in the machine, you know? And you're like, well, this is just Satan trying to get me to be irritated. Well, you're already irritated if you're thinking that thought, right? Or, or the parking place that you didn't get that's evil or, or something, and we always blame it on Satan, and Satan is, you know, the evil one that's doing everything evil. But that's not the only place that evil comes from. Evil is a byproduct of the human nature. We create our own evil ourselves. If Satan was taken out of the picture and you and I were left alone without Satan, there would still be evil in the world because we are fallen creatures. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there's none righteous, no, not one. My very essence and your very essence that we have right now is evil. It is Jesus that has come to kill that and defeat that in our lives by giving us new life. He is not somehow revamping your old life. That's going to pass away. He's giving you a new life in him, and that's what salvation is. So evil alone, human-wise, if you were to take Satan out of it and just let things happen, people themselves would come up with evil ideas on their own and do their own evil, and they would contribute to that. In this passage, and even in in our culture, I think, yeah, okay, there's a spiritual battle happening, but there's a whole lot of human evil that goes on every single day where humans decide to do this or humans decide to do that, or, and, and it's just that way. So as we talk about evil today, I want you to think in terms of human evil and try not to bridge over into the satanic and spiritual evil, but I want you to think about human evil and how we can... That's what I want you to think about. Second, you notice the video. There was a part of it that had Mordecai, and he was in front of the place where the king resides, and he was outside the door, and he heard a plot. And um, he told Esther the plot to kill the king, and Esther told the king about the plot, and the king was saved. Now, I want you to think about that a moment. Mordecai 
His land has been taken over by this king, Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the enemy in that particular regard. Ahasuerus is the reason that he no longer has contact with his parents. He's the reason that Esther no longer has any parents. I mean, there's plenty of reasons for Mordecai to say, oh man, these eunuchs over here, they're plotting to kill the king. You know what? God's judgment. Come on. God's judgment. I hope they're successful. Come on. We're all human, right? And there's plenty of reasons for Mordecai just to step back and say, hey, I'm just not going to do anything about this. But Mordecai, under the direction of God and following God, loves even the people that have taken over his country. And so what he does is he warns the king and he saves the king's life. I think that's very significant. Um, I think there's some values in life that we can learn from that particular story. But nonetheless, I just wanted to point that out. Mordecai's heart, even though the king took over his country, he's the reason he doesn't really have any family, he still decides to save the king. He still does the right thing. Now, right before you got to that on that video, you had First and Second Samuel. Now, if you've been here long enough, you'd probably, that probably didn't strike you as odd. But for some of you, it may have struck you as odd as to why that was placed into that video at that particular time. Well, here's why. In First uh, Samuel chapter 15, um, Samuel tells King Saul to go to the Amalekites and totally wipe them out, the whole race, everybody. And he didn't, he, the command was not just to wipe out the people, but also their cattle, their sheep, their goats, their oxen, their dogs, their cats, their mice. Whatever is living, they needed to wipe them out. And so King Saul goes, and he battles, and he wins, but he doesn't wipe everybody out, and he saves the king and brings him back as a prize. That king's name is Agag, and it looks like this in the Hebrew, Agag. So Agag comes back, Samuel comes to Saul, and he confronts him about this. He says, why haven't you killed everything? I hear sheep, I hear goats, I hear these animals. And Saul says, well, I just thought I'd bring these things back and sacrifice them to the Lord and give them to you. Man, that is such a political answer. I did this for you, right? I I disobeyed God but it was for you, you know, to make kind of feel better. So, you know, teenagers use that method all the time, right? Um, When Quinn was younger, like in the third grade, and he would get in trouble with his mom, he would always say, but mom, I did this for you. And the eyes were big, and it was just caring, and it melted her heart, and then I would have to step in and say, no, 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 no. No, 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 you know, that type of deal. So he's saying, hey, I brought these for you. But Saul says, no, you are supposed to kill everybody and you brought back this king. Bring Agag to me. So Agag comes before Samuel and he thinks that he's going to be let go and freed and be just fine. But Samuel kills Agag. He kills him. And that is where that story ends. Um, If you look in Esther chapter 3, Verse 1, Esther chapter 3, verse 1, 
It says this, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite. Let me show you something. If that is Agag, this is the Hebrew word for Agite. In other words, this Haman is a descendant of King Agag. They did not wipe them all out in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And in fact, a king named Hezekiah had to go back in and try to wipe them out. But there's always a strand of the Amalekites still running around. I would submit to you this morning that what we are about to read in chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 of Esther would have never happened if Saul had obeyed God. If Saul had obeyed God, the, the things in chapter 3, 4, and 5 that occurs to the Jews would have never happened. I think this is a pretty good point. See, sometimes in life, Christians have the ability, and when I say Christians, I'm including myself, we have this ability to obey God to a certain point, but not fully. We, we will obey him in this, but only go so far, but not have complete obedience. And anytime you and I decide to fall short of complete obedience, we are not only affecting our own lives, but we are affecting lives of generations to come. Now, Saul's was a little bit bigger than yours and I's. Uh, yours and I's. I like that. That's Southern. Yours and I's would be. It's good old Southern, Southern slang there for you. Yours is a little different because he is the ruler of a country and his decisions, there is no doubt. President of the United States, generations to come will be affected by his decision. Kings across the world will affect their countries way into the future after they're long gone. So that, that's a little different. But for us, if we do not have complete obedience, we, on a smaller scale, but probably more important, affect the lives of our future family members our grandchildren, their children, cousins, aunts, and uncles in the family tree. And when you and I fall short of obeying God completely, that has an impact on future generations and future things that is going to happen as well as our own lives. You and I need to take very seriously obeying God to the fullest extent and doing exactly what he says and living by what he says. And do not get into this thing where we just fall a little bit short because it does have impact in ways that we can't even fathom. There is a ripple effect. So, here's Agag. Haman the Agite, the son of Hamatha, and advanced him and set his throne above the officials who were with him. So here's a guy, Haman, an enemy of the Jews, that is set as second in command to the king. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, 
They told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So, here's good old Mordecai. He has saved the king's life at the end of chapter 2. Haman has been promoted, who is an enemy of the Jews, to second in command. This had to cause some sort of concern with the Jews. And then the king made a decree, and I'm sure Haman put him up to it, that everybody in the kingdom should bow down to Haman. Number one, Haman is full of himself. Come on. He's full of himself. He thinks he's all that in a bag of barbecue potato chips. Right? He just thinks he's it. Here are all these other people, including some Jews that are Mordecai's friends, and they are obeying the king's command to bow, and Haman, I mean, Mordecai, decides not to bow. I would submit to you this morning that there are times where you do not obey the government. There are times that you do not obey the government. It is not just because you want to. It is not just because you don't want to respect their authority. But there are times in Scripture, and it's very clear, where it is appropriate for a Christian to disobey the government. This is one of them. When there's a decree where you should worship someone else besides your God, you do not worship that person. I don't care who they are. If they're president, you don't worship them. If there's a decree to worship um, President Trump, we do not bow down and worship President Trump. We just do not do that. You may like him, you may not like him, whatever, that's fine. But if there's a decree to worship him, you just don't do it. And so here is an appropriate moment where you do not obey the rulership of the land because there's a bigger ruler and his name is God. Number two, here is Mordecai. His mom and dad aren't connected to him. He's a, he's a younger man. It would be very easy for him to bow down to Haman and everything would be okay because sometimes joining evil is easier than standing against it. Right? And so here are all these people bowing down and there's some tension there and you could really relieve the tension by just going ahead and bowing down to Haman and be done with it and then live your life and there would be nobody attacking you, nobody going after you, nothing like that. But because God is the only one to be worshipped, he was not going to bow down and worship Haman and so he stood and he decided not to. How many times have you seen Christians bow down to the world system because they just didn't want to go through what it took to stand against evil. How many times have you personally decided not to say something that you know you should have said just because you didn't want to upset the apple cart? And we, when, when we don't stand, we allow evil to progress. Now, Haman's not going to bow, I mean, Mordecai, I get them confused for some reason this morning, Mordecai isn't going to bow down to Haman and that's going to call, cause evil to do something absolutely ridiculous. And Haman is absolutely going to go out of his mind with, with jealousy and, and with just, I want to get rid of Mordecai and his people. He's going to go out of his mind. We haven't seen any of that today, right? People in culture going out of their mind because they don't agree with something, right? And acting all kinds of kinds of crazy. But nonetheless, here's Haman. Mordecai is not going to do it. He knows what, it's, what is at stake. He knows that he could be killed, but he would rather 
be killed and honor God than to live and dishonor his name. Mordecai is a man that we all can learn things from in how to stand and how to stand the correct way. So, verse 6, evil advances. That's what it says. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Why? Because the Jews had destroyed all his people. And the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And when Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the providences of your kingdom, their laws are different from the very from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agite, the son of Hamethida, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you and the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. So the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every providence in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with this king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's providences with instructions to destroy and kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every providence by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. And the couriers went out hurriedly, by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. In other words, they were celebrating this. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. I, I think it's interesting that a person can come up with such a plan to kill a bunch of people on his own. But that shows you the evil nature of of humankind, doesn't it? How many times do we read through the paper and we see things that have happened to people and we wonder, how can someone do that to a lady? How can someone do that to a child? How can that evil exist? How could they, those six people, kill that person? How can people come up with this stuff in their minds and actually do it? How can they do that? Do people just not have a moral 
compass. How can someone like Haman cast lots, make it a game to figure out when to annihilate a whole race of people? Can you imagine that? You're basically rolling the dice. Which day will it be? 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 And the lot, the chance, fell on the 13th day of the last month of the year. And then he goes to the king and presents his plan. So he's thinking through ways to get rid of people, have all their possessions taken, and them killed. Where is the moral compass? The same evil nature that resided in Haman resides in you and me. It is not but by the grace of God that you and I have any good in our life. Come on. It's not by the grace of God. Um, how many of you ever watched that show CSI? The original. Yeah, CSI. Um, I, in the past, it was, I watched that show. Um, I can't watch it anymore. I, um, I, um, I used to watch it and was intrigued with it, and there was one show that I decided to save. Just one show I decided to save because I thought I'd use it one day. So two weeks ago, I was going through my iTunes account, and I saw this CSI show, and I was like, why is that CSI show on, on my thing? So I watched it all the way through. The whole time I was watching it, because I haven't seen it in a while, I was like, oh, 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 either like this. Sometimes I was like this, not be, just because of the gruesome nature of what they sometimes show on that show. You know, I was just oh, like that. So, but I kept watching it because I was trying to figure out why in the world I, I wanted that to happen. It's basically a story about 15 um, people. One is, one is 24 years old and the rest are under that went out and attacked tourists in L.A., and it's gruesome the way that they actually attacked them, and they just did this. And through the whole concept of the show, they did this for fun. Now, if you look in, in the news and you look up articles, you realize that that show is based on something that really occurred in Los Angeles. So once you make that connection, and even though this is a fictional show that's displaying something that really happened, you start to realize how evil the world can really become. That there is actual real people that did something similar to what was portrayed on that TV show. And so at the very end of the TV show, I realized why I kept this. They're in a locker room, and they're talking about these teenagers and how in the world could someone do this to people? How could they beat them up? How could they kill them? How could they do all this violence? What would make a teenager do that? So they talked about parents, and they talked about you know, morals, and they talked about different things like this. And then Grissom, who is kind of the cool guy, cool, smart guy on the show, he says these words. Next screen. The truth is, a moral compass can only point you in the right direction. It can't make you go there. Our culture preaches that you shouldn't be ashamed of anything you do anymore. And unfortunately, this city is built on the principle that there's no such thing as guilt. Do whatever you want, 
we won't tell. So without a conscience, there is nothing to stop you from killing someone, and evidently, you don't even have to feel bad about it. That, from a liberal TV show, is astounding. See, we all have a moral compass. It's up to you whether or not you want to follow that or not. And the further you go into the darkness, the more you don't feel bad about the sin that you are doing. But the more that you go toward the Bible and light, the more you feel guilty about what you're doing and you change. What the human race needs is a moral compass. Evil will always be here until Jesus comes back, and it's only your moral compass that can save you through those dark times. That moral compass for me and for everybody in this room that has accepted Jesus as their Savior is Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. That is what should guide us. So, chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to read three verses. Here we go. And when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every providence, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamentating, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Jewish lives matter. Now, let me say something about this. That right there in our culture... If you adopt that right there, and if you put Spanish, if you put, you know, black, if you put white, if you put whatever race you want to put that, as soon as you adopt that, you have adopted hate that has its roots in the human nature. When we see that, and especially if I had thrown Black Lives Matter, the instant you do that in our culture, the thing that you would have seen is people running around burning things, acting all kinds of crazy, throwing rocks into into places of business and destroying this, that, and the other, and just acting like idiots, right? And there's a lot of hate that has come in. Another image that you would have is people actually paying these people to do that. You you would have all of that. I want you to notice in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, it never says that the Jews rose up and protested and started to burn down their villages. It never says that they bought a T-shirt and war, Black Lives Matter, or Jewish Lives Matter. They never went up and actually harmed anyone else. What is the first thing that they did when their lives were on the line? They prayed. 
They tore their own clothes. They hurt what was already theirs. And they bowed down and they prayed to their God. What is our first step anytime that evil arises and it's really oppressive and we really feel like we're going to be harmed in some way? We stop and we pray. And when we're finished praying, we go a few moments and we stop again and we pray. Mordecai and the Jewish people did the one thing that is the most powerful thing that they could do in this moment, and they stopped and they prayed. Why? Because there is a lot going on that supersedes racism. There's a lot more going on in the spiritual realm and there's things that are more powerful than me being white, someone being black, someone being Jewish, someone being Spanish, someone being all of that. There is something bigger coming, going on and there is a bigger, higher power that can actually take care of the current problem. His name is God. And according to John 3.16, for God so loved the world, all races, all nations, everybody, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When evil raises its head and pushes against Christians, the first thing that we should do, and the second thing that we should do, and the 50th thing that we should do, is we should stop and pray. And it might be a good thing for us just to go without food a little while, just to show God that we're really serious about it. We're going to go without food, we're going to fast, and we're going to pray about this thing until God moves and does something about it. We are going to trust that God will do the right thing. So we pray with faith. We pray with faith knowing that God has a plan, and one day he's going to bring his kingdom in. He might allow this evil to progress so that Jesus can come back, or he may answer our prayer and push the evil back so that we have a little more time to reach people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we stop and we pray with faith and we let God tell us what to do. We don't hold signs. We don't paint our chest. We don't go somewhere. I mean, we, we don't do that. We pray with faith and we pray knowing that God hears us. We pray knowing that God hears us. I think this is, this is very important. Sometimes when evil is progressing and it continues to and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and it's kind of oppressing and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying, sometimes you wonder if God's even listening to you. That is a natural human feeling in those moments. Absolutely natural. I don't even think God is hearing my prayer. I want you to know this morning, he's hearing your prayer. We pray with faith, we pray against evil, but we pray, Lord, if this is your will and if this is how Jesus is going to come back, then do your will and come quickly, Lord Jesus. I am ready to be raptured. If the answer to my prayer is evil is going to take over America and the world, 
but Jesus is going to come back during that time, he's just answered my prayer. I'm ready to be raptured. Rapture meaning the moment that Jesus comes back and he takes us all out of here and the tribulation begins because I don't want any part of that. I really don't like pain and I prefer heaven because there's no pain up there. Look, I went to the dentist this week and they scraped my teeth. I don't like pain. Little girl, man, little girl, she, she was younger than me which isn't hard nowadays, um, she, she, she said, okay, I can do this one or two ways. I can either take a scraper and do it like old school scraping your teeth or, you know, we have this water system that's kind of like power washing your teeth and it's a little easier on you. It doesn't hurt as much, right? I said, well, psh, let's do the power washing. Power wash my teeth. Go ahead. Crank it up. Dude, she got in there, and all my gums were like, oh, I grabbed the chair. Man, it's tough. I hate pain. But listen, we pray knowing God hears us, and if evil, if this is the moment where evil is supposed to progress and the Antichrist is supposed to come on the scene, so be it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, take me out of here, and I'll watch it from heaven. But if not, Lord... Push this evil back for the sake of my children, my grandchildren, all my relatives, all the people at the church and their children and their grandchildren, and push this back and recognize that you have people that have a moral compass that is based on the Bible that want to follow you. Let them succeed. Amen? We pray knowing God hears us. We do. And we pray until the situation has changed. Well, just give up. We pray until the situation has changed. So, here's something that we don't often consider, but I've said this several times, and you may have heard me say it. We pray knowing God will have you do something about it. Look, um, prayer isn't just something that you do and you just wait for God to work it out without you being involved in it? Prayer is something that you pray knowing that God's going to use you in some way to be the answer to that prayer. Sometimes you are actually the central person that God is going to use to answer that particular prayer for that moment. And sometimes you just play a part in the answer of that prayer. And he has other people that he's working in order for that prayer to, to be answered. But you will always be used of God to answer the very prayers that you are praying. So when you bow down and you pray against the evil that is rising, the evil that is coming upon us, we pray knowing that God might have us stand in a big way or in a small way. He may have us to do a little thing that is connected to all the other big things that he is doing, or we might be the central piece where everybody else is a part of that answer to prayer, and we are actually spearheading the whole effort. When we pray, we have faith that God is going to move, and we wait for him to tell us when we need to do something about it. That right there is going to be something that we unpack next week as the story continues. So, that said, 
Let's all stand. And I would like us to read this scripture together. It's James chapter 5, verse 16. Let's read it. Ready? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. How great is the power of prayer? It's great. It's not small. You might feel like you're not doing anything while you're praying, but you're doing the greatest thing that you can do when you pray about a situation that is bothering you. Do not underestimate the power of prayer. It is our number one weapon. Our number one weapon. Let's pray.